0: Welcome back to the podcast. This is episode number two eighty-seven of the Maluli Asset Management podcast. Your loyal co-hosts are here, Brendan Maluli and Tom Maluli. Brendan, hello. Hey. So we're we're putting in the uh, final episodes of 2019 here, putting a good wrap on a pretty good year for podcasts, and looking forward to episode three hundred, which will be early in 2020. Yeah pretty good. So let's kick off uh, this week's episode. You want to talk about uh, something we were both looking at? Yeah. Before we turn the mics on? Our friend Phil uh, Phil Huber did a good blog post uh, just this morning and uh, a lot of good charts in it and, and topics. And so uh, Phil wrote this one because this time of year you get a lot of predictions in terms of price targets for the S&P 500 and uh, predictions on the ten-year yield, and and they usually it's it's a one-year thing. So we're we're going to do it this this time of year at the end of 2019, and and project what's going to occur in 2020, as if anybody can actually do that. The so other thing, I, the other I, thing is that uh, he raised a good point. Like if you say you didn't like the market in 2019, that was your stand for the year. Mm-hmm. Like I said, the uh, you know someone was out there saying the market's going to go down or not be positive for 2019 and then they flip the calendar one page into January 1st of the next year how can things suddenly change just because the calendar changed right like the 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 market doesn't know that we've orbited the sun one full time now and and we're entering another year these are arbitrary things that we put on ourselves to to measure periods of time and to to your point i mean uh, I, I saw something just this morning, and it was, it was uh, Stanley Druckenmiller, who uh, a year ago was very, very negative on the market and railing against the Fed. To his credit today, still railing against the Fed because he always probably will, but admitted that a year ago, he was absolutely, totally wrong. And he's had to adapt over the course of the year. So predictions over a one-year time frame are really hard because Stanley Druckenmiller is by all by all accounts one of the best investors of this generation. Yes. I, I would think most would agree with that. Yeah. So really tough to do. Nonetheless, we get these research pieces from every investment bank uh, and mutual fund shop out there on earth, and we laugh at them. So yeah. instead of laughing at them, Phil put together this piece, and he said, "Let's think about some trends." over the next decade, as opposed to one year, because it's, it's easier to predict things when you've got a, lo- a longer runway, uh, bigger picture topics. And, uh, you know, there, there were a handful of really good charts and uh, some insights from Phil here, but one in particular that caught my eye, uh, and this, again, maybe uh, going back to the futility of one-year predictions, uh, looked at analyst predictions from a year ago in December, the analysts were trying to predict where they felt the 10-year uh, treasury yield was going to end this year. And I don't know if you want to generally describe this this chart. We'll, we'll link to this so you can check out the visual, but man. <laughs> yeah, you don't even need the the actual numbers down the side of the, the graph to see it, because all the lines are above it. Mm-hmm. I mean, they basically started at where the 10-year yield was a year ago mm-hmm. and you started a straight line, virtually everybody, everybody had said interest rates were going to be skewing higher and some much higher. So let's, let's rewind the clock. Uh, about a year ago, I think we had just gotten, not not far off the mark, we had just gotten our third rate hike right. of the calendar year. And the ten year at that point was around uh looks like two point six, maybe two point seven percent. Right. And let's also remember at the beginning of December a year ago, mm-hmm. chairman of the Fed came out and said, We are nowhere near neutral. I envision several more rate hikes was was gonna into add twenty nineteen. Sa- was gonna add the same thing because we recently heard from the very same man who says that they don't really see themselves doing anything next year. So I would take that and throw it out the window too, because who knows yeah. they have to adapt to, to new data as it comes out and they're going to do what they have to do. But we demand these predictions. I'm not, I'm not here knocking on Jay Powell. That's a really hard job to do He has to stand up at the podium and answer these ridiculous questions where people expect him to predict the future. Unfortunately you uh, get backed into a corner and you have to say something and then you say something, and it ends up being the opposite of what you do. He probably would have said, we're probably going gonna to continue the, the hiking cycle if we were 12 months ago right now. That's it's exactly what, what he, he did. Yeah. So why didn't that happen? Well, things changed. It's so funny when so we're talking about on that stuff. You yeah, know I mean? you like, can't. When you're talking about the Fed in particular and interest rates, the press bashed Janet Yellen. Mm -hmm. Because she always used the term data-dependent. The direction of rates is is data-dependent. We have to wait and see what the numbers are going to give us before we can determine what to do. The hilarious thing is, if you look at the comments from her predecessor, Ben Bernanke, there's that that phrase again, data-dependent. Then you go back to Greenspan, data-dependent. You go back for the last five Fed chairmen, they all use the same phrase data dependent so it, i think that the problem is that we all want answers nobody want that because basically what data de, what data dependent means to me is we don't know we'll, we'll get back to you when when we do know like yeah. when When the future becomes the present, we'll tell you what we want to do, which is a non-answer. And people hate non-answers. They want the certain answer, which says, hey, we're going to meet in March and we're going to hike then because of this, that and the other thing. I'm sorry, that doesn't, that's not how the world works. The addendum to that is you will then hear people say the Fed is always behind the curve, meaning how could they possibly be anything but behind the curve? They have to be behind the curve because (laughs) they're data dependent. They have to wait for the numbers to come out. Exactly Right. 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 They completely whiffed this year. I mean, not even close. Where's the ten year? Oh, meaning meaning back to the the analysts here right. predicting the ten year. Yeah, right. I, I was going to say before whiff is is the one word description of of this chart. I mean, the the ten year yield is is hovering down around two percent now, and and a lot of these predict, predictions had it. Up north of three percent. I mean, I know. Uh, also, about a year ago, that's what uh, Jeff Gundlach was saying. One of the smartest bond managers out there. Wrong again. Right. Right. <laughs> and again, not. Uh, I, I would. I would never sit here and say that uh, Jeff Gundlach is not a smart guy. I think anybody who's heard him speak uh, and looked at the performance of his double line funds over the, over the years would would say this guy knows what he's talking about. Uh, yeah. This is just a really hard game to play, and you don't have to play it. No. That's, that's I think the important thing for a lot of people to take away from this is they don't, <laughs> you don't have to have a view on where the 10-year is going to end 2020 to invest your portfolio in a sensible way. So let's talk about being sensible. When interest rates go up, like most bond analysts predicted 12 months ago, when rates are going up, what happens to bond prices or bond values? They go down. Right. What happened this year with bonds? The opposite of that right I, I also would would say that uh, through three hikes in 2018 the carnage uh, or lack thereof you, you're it, being sarcastic yeah there, mean, there wasn't there any. wasn't carnage in bonds in 2018 and we had three rate hikes meaning that you don't need to you don't even need to have a directional view on what rates will do over the next 12 months because the amount of money that you have between stocks and bonds should be determined by something completely different than anyone's 12-month outlook on yeah. the direction of interest rates like You're, anybody who thinks they can predict that is out of their mind. I kind of felt like I was wandering off the reservation with that leading question but thanks for bringing it all home because that's right. That's really what your bond allocation should come from, stem from is how does this fit into your picture? Mm-hmm. And everyone's picture is different. Right. All right. right. What else was in uh, Phil's post? Will, you know, picture, they always say picture is worth a thousand words. This graph is going to be worth a million words. Yeah. And and there's a couple more charts that I want to talk about. We can give you the uh, the details and certainly discuss here. We'll link directly to Phil's post and and you can scroll through this and, and Phil, uh, is a, uh, advisor out in the Chicago area, CFA, CFP. Uh, I respect him a lot. Super smart guy. So, uh, one of, one of the champions of Twitter <laughs> for sure. I would check out his, uh, commentary too, because I largely, uh, agree with, with what he had to say too. But another, another one that, that Phil outlined here, and again this is this is uh you know over the 2020s let's call it he he uh, posited that politics will matter much less to your portfolio than you think they will. Right. Which seems uh unbelievable at this point in time with with the news cycle the way things are but markets are going up and down based on every tweet that's out there. Seems seems like it and and I know everyone's going to get riled up over you know, elections next year, too. But but Phil shared some numbers here, and these were courtesy of, I think, uh, BlackRock and Morningstar had, had put together this stuff. But in election years, uh, the numbers for stocks and bonds in terms of their, their annualized returns in years where a new president is elected versus all election years versus when the incumbent president wins. The story here is that they're positive across the board. slight Slightly different in some of these scenarios, but I don't I don't really think that there's anything on average to to show here that uh you know the outcome of an election should have you making binary decisions about whether to be in or out. But Brendan, a couple of clients have told us that if Trump doesn't get reelected, this stock market's going to zero. Right. We we had very same message uh you know 4 4 years ago when people said that if if he did win the stock market was going to go to zero, and people were wrong then. And I would imagine that most of the hot takes coming out over the next eight, nine, ten months here, as we ramp up for the twenty twenty election, will look very stupid in hindsight too. It's really impossible to predict how how the world is going to react to that, and and let alone the initial reaction after an election doesn't always have to be what then turns into Actually a longer happens. term trend. Right. Yeah. This time, uh, meaning back in two thousand sixteen, we saw a ramp up following the election and then a continuation of that trend in 2017. But four years before that in 2012, we saw the market drop initially and then go on a terrific run for 2013. 2013 right. is one of the only years in, in recent history that's better than this current year that we're experiencing right now. Yeah. That was a terrific year. It so was. there's not a lot to discern there. I think it's more noise than, than signal. Uh, when it comes down to it, and uh a follow up chart to that from Phil was just the annualized returns during every president's term going back to hoover. One thing that that you pointed out that I thought was was pretty wise is that uh these are you know. four-year blocks of time that we have uh, mapped out here. and So let me just give the backdrop for the listeners. So what Phil did was he—I don't know if Phil did this or it came from— It's from Dimensional. From Dimensional. So it shows that for each four-year term, starting with Herbert Hoover going right through Trump, what have the returns been? Doesn't matter if you're red or blue, what have the returns been? And and I think the insightful thing that you added was that sure uh, you know we've we've had some different periods higher and lower in terms of returns, but there are only three outside of the initial one in uh, when you know we had Hoover right at the beginning here entering the Great Depression. Uh, aside from that, there are there are three periods of negative returns over four year blocks of time here. That's covering like eighty years. Yeah. <laughs> that's that's a lot of time and and so I think to just strip out like whether this person specifically the president or their political party had an impact on what was happening with with stocks or the business climate at the time your your general point I think was that if you give the stock market four years your your odds of earning some kind of positive average return on your money pretty good pretty good not a guarantee for sure right. uh, nobody would say that but Pretty freaking good, and yep. if we're talking about two presidential terms, that's almost a decade, and and I can tell you the the odds are uh, above ninety percent if we're talking about historical what what has the S and P five hundred done over periods of time when you stretch it that long. So, so who were the negatives? The negatives were one one of FDR's four year terms was was negative because we entered the Great. Depression and then it had like a second wind in the back half of the thirties. Right. Uh, and it came everyone thought it was over and then it came back. So you got that one. That was thirty-seven to forty. Right. Uh bad bad stretch there. Annualized like negative, looks like not quite ten percent, but pretty bad over a four year stretch. And then the other two were uh W. Yeah. Back back to back in the early two uh, thousands. And we and we know too that uh, I believe this is this, and it is. It's looking at the S and P 500, and 2000 to 2009 was a lost decade for large cap U.S. stocks. Yeah, there were there were other places. Hopefully, you were diversified. If you had small caps, value stocks did well over that period. International and stocks killed. International it. stocks yeah. were great. So, yeah. uh, a lost decade for that specific uh, slice of the pie. Hopefully, from from your portfolio. But it's interesting to note, just because Bush George W. Bush. It's more recent. I wasn't around when Herbert Hoover was, but um, even though I feel that way sometimes. Um, <laughs> you know, the first term really produced like... A, his first term produced like a zero yeah. uh, for the first four years, and that Z- was 2000 to 2004. Yeah, and that had... But it, you know what I mean? Like it—it it didn't have anything to do with him specifically. He right. caught the tail end of the internet bubble. Did he create the internet bubble? No, like, he, he didn't. He definitely didn't. Come on. Uh, Mike. <laughs> so he was getting educated. The beginning of 2000, right as he was inaugurated, was the top of the Nasdaq market at 5,000. Right. And I mean, the internet bubble completely popped in 2000. Then we had 9/11 in 2001. We had a a pretty tough recession in 2002. Mm-hmm. So. I'm not making excuses, but this is kind of how these things snowball. And then 2000, his second term, 2005, 2006, and even the first two thirds of 2007 were actually really good, but wiped out in the summer of 2008. Right. This largely comes down to just timing. And when you step into the shoes and where we're at in an economic cycle, that tells the story. So to point at stock market returns and say that, the good ones are yours, and the bad ones are not yours. Right. Like that's yeah, the, total when, nonsense. Yeah, when the Cut red when the red party's in, things are good, yeah. or when the Democrats get in, things are good. It it, it it's, honestly, whoever's telling you, regardless of what party they're from, that like that narrative works. Fake news. Yeah, it's that's totally bunk, and I don't I don't put any uh I don't put any faith in it at before, all. Before we leave that. Um, mm-hmm. It's it's unscientific when I look at the the graph, but at the bottom of it, they had the numbers for uh, Hurt, for Hoover and Roosevelt, and I mentioned to you at first glance, I'm like, you know, Hoover and Roosevelt. If you look at those two lines, they almost cancel each other out. Yeah, but that was that was a really long stretch of time where, if you look at something like the Dow Jones, there was not progress. There was. Tons of volatility, and maybe maybe there were stretches where you made money uh, you during that. About but seventeen years, you had to go right? from the Great Depression through World War II, right? Fully yeah. uh, to to experience positive returns. So as we noted before, no no, no promises over longer stretches of time. But uh, you know that that was a particularly rough one. Last one from Phil's piece that I wanted to bring up uh, was a chart that he uh, linked from Research Affiliates, talking about the top dogs and how they're constantly changing uh, over this time. This is great. This is great because he showed the decade of the top names, the top 10 names in terms of capital, in terms of size, uh, market cap, mm-hmm. uh, in the 80s, 90s, 2000s, and now the the current decade. Yeah. And uh, this covers my entire career span. Mm-hmm. Yeah, so the 10 biggest companies in the world at the beginning of each of these decades and Just the, do me a favor. Just read the list from the 80s. Right. All right. So in the 80s, we've got uh, IBM, AT&T, ExxonMobil, Standard Oil, Schlumberger, Shell, Mobile, Atlantic Richfield, GE, and Eastman Kodak. Out of the top 10, six were oil companies. Yeah. So the world has changed a lot since then. The overarching theme of these lists is... is while it seems at the time, and we'll, we'll read the one from this year just to drive home this point, it seems that at the time, like in 1980, those names were the biggest and best companies out there. They and were. probably nobody would have told you not to put your money into them. But you can't go wrong. Yeah, right. So, but if you made a specific bet, Brendan, Kodak's not going anywhere. <laughs> that one's particularly easy to dunk on in hindsight here, yeah. but they all seemed really great at the time. It's not necessarily that all of them are gone. They're not all gone, but a lot of them have merged or they are literally gone, like bankrupt, like uh, Eastman, Kodak, just their business is obsolete now. I think those six oil companies are now, they're all like one company. (laughs) They're all, yeah, I think they're two, but yeah. Point being that like these companies either disappear or they just go on from that point forward to vastly underperform what you could do by just being more diversified. So while it may seem like a slam dunk to own the biggest and brightest names individually, the stat here is that typically only two of the top 10 remain 10 years later. Yeah, how would so you like a, to be wrong? That's a bad bet. It is. Um, so let's let's yeah, just read off the names of today because I think this drives home uh, because I look at this list and I'm like, yeah, those are, those are the best companies out there. Uh, but it just speaks to the need for diversification. Uh, as of today, if we were gonna make this list, It would be Microsoft, Apple, Amazon, Alphabet, Berkshire Hathaway, Facebook, Tencent, Alibaba, Johnson & Johnson, J.P. Morgan. The fact that Johnson & Johnson is still on that list makes even a guy like me underestimate how gigantic they really are. I mean, we look and we see their earnings from quarter to quarter, and we're like, oh, that's terrible. But, you know, a company like Johnson & Johnson to grow 10%, uh, yeah, all all the different businesses they've rolled up over, over the years and brought under their their umbrella. Again, I don't have any specific views on which 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 are going to be the two of these ten that uh, are are still on this list come ten years from now. There's there's no guarantee that any of them disappear. But if we're going to use history as any guide, I I wouldn't be looking to make concentrated bets on any of these companies today uh, because. The world changes and the leaders will not remain the leaders forever. Nobody stays on top forever. Yeah, I mean, if you think about the list from the 80s, the two, uh, I'm using air quotes now, the two technology companies on there were IBM, mm-hmm. uh, which was still doing hardware at the time. They hadn't even started the personal computer in 1980. So they were still doing mainframes, hardware, and AT&T, right. which looks nothing like it did 40 years ago, right. and they had to divest all of their Baby Bell spinoffs. That happened in 84. Yeah. Then we had all of these other Bell Labs, Lucent Technologies, all of these companies, Avaya. Remember Avaya? And uh, all of these things got spun off and then put back together again. It's insane. So you look at these technology companies that are now at the top of the current list, and you say... Facebook is now under the microscope for the FTC you know they're looking at maybe they're a monopoly. there are people out there, Scott uh, Galloway from the professor from NYU says they should break up Amazon uh, they should break out break up all of these technology companies. what are they going to look like we don't know yeah we don't know I mean Microsoft has been pretty constant on this list for most of these decades, but there was a period of time from I think it was 1997 through 2005 or 2006, almost 10 years, where they were under antitrust examination from the FTC. Their stock went nowhere, Mm -hmm. 10 year period. Now, great. So hard to tell. So uh, we have to make room on our uh, prize shelf and put put room for Phil Huber up there. Thank you for uh, contributing as a source now for our uh, podcast. Yeah, hopefully we'll have him on someday as a guest. Has he been on Tim's podcast? No, his uh, his colleague uh, Maureen uh, was a guest, and uh, I know just not that long ago. Yeah, and I know that I know that uh, we, I know Tim would like to get Phil on there, so we'll, we'll have to talk to him sometime soon. All right, thanks again for tuning in to episode 287, and we will catch up with you on the next episode.